I would imagine that every producer, writer, actor, when they're in a movie, hope that their iconic movie is going to be the most impactful of all time. Or why would you ever act? Nobody saw this one. 1975, there was a movie that came out. It vacated virtually every beach in the United States. Remember that movie? Yep. It was epic. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All you have to do is just hear that. And it makes you never want to go to the beach, doesn't it? I was a teenager when that came out. Oh, let's just watch the movie. I, I couldn't go to the ocean. I mean, I was like, I was there at the beach. I was like, I can't touch the water because it might come up and get me. I didn't realize until I was reading about this, this movie absolutely destroyed businesses up and down the Atlantic, up and down the Pacific. Because that wasn't just a movie. That was real life. And Jaws is real. And it's going to get you. I had moments where I couldn't even get in a bathtub. Showers are okay. Bathtubs, uh uh-uh. Gathered water, no. Lakes, no. There was going to be a hybrid jaws that could make it to the lake. It changed us. It did. Fear is that way. It can get into a person's life and alter the way they think, the way they act. It can take things that are fictitious and turn them into something that absolutely seems as real as anything in the world. Sometimes when fear gets us, it makes us completely unaware of everything else around us. There was a lady in Arkansas, this happened to, she was shopping, she came out, it was a hot day, she got into her car, and all of a sudden, bam, it was like a gunshot, and she knew immediately, searing pain in the back of her head, she grabbed her head and she began to scream. Her window was down and she was screaming, I've been shot, I've been shot. And this guy comes running up to her and he goes, are you okay? She goes, I've been shot and I'm holding my brains in. (laughs) Somehow this gentleman had a composure far beyond expectation. And he looked at her and said, ma'am, I don't think you've been shot. You had a canister of biscuits that exploded. It hit the back of your head. And what you're feeling is not your brains, it's your biscuits. (laughs) Sometimes fear gets the best of us. And we become unaware and we literally create our own narrative as to what we think is going on. Oh, sometimes fear is helpful. It is. I love, I just get enamored with the way God created us. I hope you never tire of that. I love studying the brain and the eyes and everything. I don't know anything about it medically. I just love looking at all the things. Fear is an interesting one. When a person gets taken by fear, the kind of fear where your life is at stake, not the kind of fear is, I've got a test on Monday and I haven't studied at all. That's not fear. That's just stupidity. But... (laughs) No, I'm talking about your life is in danger. The brain perceives the fear and immediately takes over and works with the nervous system. It's fascinating. And the brain tells the blood flow, 
alter your course. No longer does blood flow go to your digestive tract. It goes to your muscles. Why? Because the brain knows body, you're going to need to run. Your life is in danger. The blood flow is going, bypasses the digestive system, goes to the muscles, and then the brain triggers this little thing called adrenaline. We know, we've heard about people that can lift up cars and save their family members. That's because the brain tells the body, adrenaline surge, and it does. Oh, it's something else. And then the brain communicates to the eyes. This one's really cool because the eyes are going to need to be heightened. And so the brain tells the eyes, we need more power. And what happens is the eyes begin to immediately dilate, which enables two things. Number one, for the capacity to see increases, including at night, and your periphery vision broadens much more significantly than it is on a normal day. All of that because the brain says you're in danger. God is amazing. But that's not what David's talking about. He's not talking about irrational fear necessarily, like a biscuit sleeve going in your head. He's not talking about danger that you really do need to run from. David's talking about senseless fear. The kind that grips the vast majority of us. But it causes us to get stuck. It's the fear that can make you quit your job before you should have. It's the fear that causes you to break off a relationship that you shouldn't have. It's the fear that prevents you from asking a person out on a date that you should, but your fear of failure and rejection overtake you and you think, I I could never do that. It's senseless fear. It's the kind of fear that grips you and controls you. That's what David is talking about today and he wants to help you get unstuck. Why? Because fear wants to control you. It does. It wants to control your life like it did David. I find this fascinating because David is one of the most incredible, courageous warriors that you could ever imagine. He led a team of fighting men that would make any SEAL team envious. David was the kind of warrior that would make any ranger team and he would probably lead the battalion. So how does a guy like that become afraid? Well, we know he is because he's absolutely controlled with it. And that's what fear seeks to do. It seeks to control our attention. If you look at this text, chapter 55, look at verse 1, and you go through and just kind of quickly read through five verses. And what you have is five different words that David is grabbing all to tell you, I am scared to death. He says, my thoughts trouble me. What are those? The what ifs. What if my kid goes to school? What if my kid has a friend? What if my kid finds a friend that becomes an axe murderer? I don't think my child is ever going to leave the home. What if my child drives a car? If they drive a car, they're going to run into a drunk. I know they are. The drunk's going to run into them. Therefore, you're never going to get the keys. It's the what if. It's the person who continues to create all kinds of things in life. Why? Because they're so afraid of living that they want to paralyze not just themselves, but everyone. 
It's the what ifs. It's the terrible thoughts that David talks about. It's that I am distraught. He goes on, he goes, my heart is in anguish. Within me, the terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overcome me. I mean, this guy is not leaving his bedroom. Why? Because he's controlled with fear. That's what fear wants to do. Satan, who is behind all fear, wants to control you. Doesn't want to release you. Doesn't want to encourage you. Doesn't want to encourage, uh, you know, strengthen you. It wants to control you. And he can do it most easily, I think, through fear. Where we become afraid of everything. And what it does is it makes us want to run. It makes us want to escape a given situation, a given relationship, a job, doesn't matter what. Just like David, he says in verse 6, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove, and I would fly away and be at rest. How fanciful. Oh, if I could just get out of this situation, I would find a better life. I think about a year and a half, I actually had that moment. I was tired of COVID, tired of all the fighting, tired of all the innuendos, tired of all the ultimatums. And I thought to myself, God, if there's another planet that you can take me to that we don't have to deal with all this stuff, I'm in. Call Mr. Tesla and let him know I'm on his rocket ship. I'll go. I'm just fed up with this stuff. I was there. I I wasn't necessarily fearful. I was just exhausted and tired. And when you get to that place, the only thing you can think of is, I want relief. That's what David is. That's why it's senseless. Because it causes you to think silly things like, oh, if I was a dove, I'd fly out of here. And here's the silliness too. And I would be at rest as if wherever I go, it's peaceful over there. Not here, but over there, it's got to be good. Not if there are humans. Not unless you're going to a zoo to hang out. The reality is fear wants to make us run. There's two ways that we run. Number one is you leave something early that you need to stay in. It's the person who walks into the boss and says, I resign. Why? Well, because you're going to fire me. No, we're not. Oh, you'll find a reason. So it's the person who thinks somehow I'm not going to succeed here. Somehow this is not the right place. And so they, they want to pull out before they get fired. Or it's the person that doesn't do something that they really want to or should do. Both are driven by fear. And both have this passion to run. I was talking with a friend not all that long ago who told me, he says, yeah, we've, we've moved. You moved? What'd you move for? Well, my wife was afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of what's going on. So you moved? You sold your house. You moved to another state with no job. You bought a home. You did all of that solely motivated by fear. Yeah, we did. When are you going to stop? Stop what? Stop running. 
because you're going to find probably within, you know, the next year, you're going to have a murder somewhere halfway down the block from where you live. There's going to be something. And, and what's going to happen then? What, what are you going to move for next? Because if fear becomes the guiding and directing and kind of controlling element of your life, you're never going to stop running ever because there will be always something to be afraid of. When fear gets control of you, it really begins to affect the way you think and react to people in particular and it creates a massive distrust of people. You become distrustful at every level. David, he was that way. He says, if an enemy, verse 12, were insulting me, I could endure it. But if a foe were raising himself up against me, I could handle that. David had handled that all of his life. I mean, he was made king and he had a foe immediately. But here something's happened. Look at the turn in verse 13. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. What's happening to David? He's becoming mistrusting. Not just of his companion. If you read on, let death take my enemies, the whole city. What happens is you begin to think not just for yourself, but you begin to think for everyone else. And you begin to project thoughts into people's minds. And all of a sudden, whatever you become afraid of, you start to project that on people and they start to live that way. Whether or not they own it or not, it doesn't matter to you. Because when you are controlled by fear, you become irrational. And everything is a threat to you. And so you begin to wall up and you begin to pull back just like David. You're distraught. My closest friend is now an enemy. And being a friend to a person who is riddled with fear is impossible. Because you're never perfect enough. They will always find a reason why you are a part of the great cadre of enemies that are against them. And they'll come against you, or more likely than not, they'll just walk away. That's why fear gets you stuck. It gets you isolated. Scripture says he who isolates himself, he breaks out against all sound judgment. A person that isolates themselves and begins to sever off and wall off all kinds of relationships says breaks out against what? Wisdom, common sense. And the next thing you know, you got your brains falling out of the back of your head when it's really just a biscuit gone awry. How do you solve that? Because I guarantee you, some of you today, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Because you're getting ready to run. It might not mean you leave where you live but it might mean in some form you're going to run because you're afraid because you're riddled with it and you're constantly thinking about it. That's where David was. But there's hope because he makes a turn 
It is a dramatic turn, and it comes to us in verse 16. But I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, noon, I cry out. In other words, I become as obsessed with talking to God and asking as I was previously with focusing on fear. What's David's encouragement? When you find peace, you're going to find it when you invite God into this picture. When you decide to pause for a moment and stop yourself from all of your panic and anxiety, and David has it, he's riddled to the top with it. What do you do? Well, number one, he reminds himself of God's greatness. And that's a beautiful place to begin. God, verse 19, you're enthroned forever. In other words, there is no one that is higher than you. There's no one who has appeared to you. You're enthroned. You are over. You are established. You are well-placed. So what happens in your and my life is as fear grows and gets bigger, my view of God diminishes. It's like the song that says, and the things of earth will grow strangely huge in the light of God's pathetic inability to protect me. Remember that song? That's what happens when fear gets a hold of you. There's a direct relationship. As fear grows, your view of God decreases. And so David knows that if I'm going to flip that, then I've got to elevate God. I've got to discover who God really is. My favorite thing to do, absolutely all-time favorite, is to walk out on a clear night and to look up into the stars and just to imagine my God created every one of them. And not only that, he named them. I don't know if you kind of ever get to that moment where you're thinking pretty proud of yourself. And you're thinking that, you know what, I can take my fear on because after all, I'm pretty tough. Just try that. Go outside and start kind of naming the stars. Keep track of them. You have to because you got billions of them. Or maybe if you're struggling and your fear is big, why? Because you're larger than God or your fear is larger than God. Go over to the ocean. By the way, they need you. They have a tsunami coming. And they're going to need somebody who has all kinds of strength that can go over there and say, Halt, ocean, I love Lincoln City. They're going to need you. And I want you to stop the ocean. And I want you to lower the swells. And I want you to calm it. Because if you're going to take fear on by yourself, you're going to need to be that powerful. And if you do that and you succeed at it, call me. Because I want you to come up to my property. I have some mud. And I want you to put together a pile of the mud and I want you to breathe life into it. And I want you to make a human being, one that has a brain and is wisdom and loves to get up at five o'clock in the morning and work (laughs) and doesn't ask for a lot of money. (laughs) I need you to create life. 
And I need you to create one that has thinking capacity that you do. And all the brilliance and your eyes and your ability to taste. So what enables fear to exist in your life is that you've allowed the things of earth to grow strangely huge in the light of God's wimpy, pathetic inability to protect you. David says, if you're going to find peace, you'll do it when you invite God into the picture. But my question is, what's the size of your God? Because there's no fear that can withstand the size of David's God. God, you endure forever. And there's nothing that threatens you. Secondly, David teaches us, and it's really simple, but it needs to be stated. Make sure you ask God for help. I call to God. How often? Evening, morning, noon, I cry out to him. It seems rather obvious, but the reality is a lot of people don't. They call a friend. They post on Facebook, I need help. They call their mom. They call dad. They call a score of other people. And they've yet to call God. They worry. They get up. They have all kinds of indigestion. They're taking Tums throughout the day. They're doing all kinds of things to treat their body and to treat this situation, but they've yet ever to just pause and say, you know what, God, I'm in over my head. I need help. I don't mean to be harsh on us guys, but the reality is, guys, we probably need to face this more than the ladies. There was a study that was done a number of years ago. Michael Addis. James Mahalik did a study. They spent millions of dollars to do it. They could have called my wife and done it for about a nickel. It's a study on men. They noticed that men are far less likely than women to ask for help with directions. It took them a million dollars to figure that one out. Dude, one specimen, I could have told you that. They, they went on in their study and they noticed that men are far less likely to go to their general practitioner, to their doctor. Uh, they are just inclined to, well, you know, I mean, have a beer or some other great medicinal response. They, they don't go. And, and then they also noticed this one, and my wife has got a PhD on this one, is that um, guys, when they go to the doctor, ask 50% fewer questions than their wives. Uh, That's exactly why I don't take the kids to the doctor. I I don't, because when I go, I forget to ask. I don't think to ask. I'm not that sharp in that area. And I go home and Carrie asks all the questions. Why didn't you ask this? Did you ask this? And then we have a really, really kind of less than perfect night. Why? Because to be quite honest with you guys, have a hard time asking. That's why I love the fact that David wrote this. One of the most courageous individuals in the world. Probably the best senior leader as a king that the nation of Israel ever had. And he comes to the place in his life where fear had just swallowed him up. 
And he comes to God and he says, God, I need help. To the one who's enthroned forever. To the one who created all of the stars and named them. To the one who set the boundaries for the ocean. And to the one who took dirt and breathed life into them. I need help. And when you ask, God wants to make sure that you're willing to surrender. Especially those areas that you can't control. David is talking to God again. And he says, as he's looking over the situation, he says, but it is you, a a, a man like myself, my companion. And, And what's happened? This companion is all of a sudden talking in ways that he he can't control. David can't control things. He he can't silence him. He he can't keep track of him. He ransoms unharmed from the battle and he wages. And he goes down in verse 20 and this companion, he says, he attacks my friends and his friends and he violates his covenant. I can't stop him. I, I can't get control of him. His speech is smooth as butter. Yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they're drawn swords. David comes to the place in his life where he realizes, I have a friend that's out of control. I can't even stop him. I have a friend that I can't get control over. Stephen Covey had a great principle. He said this. He says, act within the area of your influence and release the rest of them. David would agree with that because after he communicates about this friend, he says in the next verse, verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. I like Covey's point. I think it's a great principle. Act within the area of your influence and release the rest of it. I might just add this. Release those things that you can't control and release the things that you can control. You need to all add all of them over to God and cast your cares upon him. God, I've got a meeting today that I know these folks are angry and I I can't solve this issue. I can't bring an end to all of these uh, vitriolic issues. And so God, rather than me losing sleep over it and twisting over and throwing down the tums, how about God, if you go before me, God, I've got a situation where this couple, they are in a mess. And, and this lady is hurting and her husband is upside down in stupidity. And I feel like, God, I got one shot with him. 30 minutes. There's so much that seems at stake. I just feel ill-equipped. Please, would you help me? The most courageous warrior in the world said, God, there's a lot of things in this world that I can't control. I can't even control my good friend. Surrender what you can't control to God. And by the way, surrender what you think you can control.
It's very simple to just say, God, I need your help. I do. I don't want to abdicate my role. I don't want to get rid of my responsibilities. But I simply don't have the wisdom that you have to lead in a way that honors you. I will find peace when I invite God into the picture. But there's also going to come a point in that journey where you have to make a decision. David does. I call it a line in the sand. And you have to draw a line in the sand about faith, about God. Look at verse 23. But you, O God, will bring down the wicked... And into the pit of corruption, bloodthirsty and deceitful men will not live out half their days. But as for me, I trust you. There's the line in the sand. And there's a score of people through the Bible that make that exact line in the sand. You know it from Joshua. What was Joshua's line? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yeah, it's a line in the sand. David says, come absolutely no matter what happens, I trust God. What does that mean? I think two things. Number one, I trust his power. I trust your power. You, O God, will bring down the wicked. You have the power to do that. They are not enthroned. You are. They are not almighty. You are. They are not sufficient and all sufficient. You are. David recognizes, God, you are the one that has ultimate authority. And when you live that way, you can live and believe. It's not that all of life is going to be easy. Sometimes things are going to get really hard and really messy. But you know that God, who is almighty, has allowed it. And I am not having to fight this fight alone. It means that I trust his power. Secondly, though, it means that I trust his character. God, you're going to judge the wicked. You're going to put them into a pit. Bloodthirsty and deceitful people. They feel like they can live forever. But you will not let them live out half their days. It means that God, I trust at the end of the day, whatever you allow into my life, it is for my good. It is for your glory. I can trust your character. I never have to doubt it. I never have to wonder, are you trying to hurt me? You're trying to wound me? You're trying to ruin my life? No, I trust you. At the end of the day, I will do my best to silence fear in my life that I might fulfill the vision and the will of God. How do you handle your fear? You surrender to God, who will ultimately drive out senseless fear. You surrender to Him. You cry out to Him. You ask Him for help. Sometimes, even in a split second. Some of you may have heard the name of Gary Haugen. Gary used to work for the Department of Justice. He had a great job. Purr's tier one, 30 years, he could have walked absolutely the most comfortable lifestyle until he died. In the Department of Justice, Gary became very aware of a world that was dark, 
but it wasn't his assignment. In particular, the world that Gary became aware of was the sex trafficking, the child trafficking, enslavement that occurred all, that occurs all over the world. Over the years, Gary began to talk with other friends about what can we do? What can we do? And the reality is a lot of times people would say, Gary, we don't have a clue. You're the one with the training. You're the one with the insight. You need to do something. And over a period of three years, Gary talked about that and prayed about that. And finally, with his wife and children, he came to the conclusion, I think I need to leave the Department of Justice and launch the International Justice Mission. He remembers the day where he walked into his office and he was going to submit his resignation to his boss. He walked into his boss's office and fear just came over him. Just like that fog that came over us yesterday. Just kind of moved in, obscured everything. And in that moment, he restated what he was going to say. And he said, boss, I've loved working for you. Would you consider giving me a year off and securing my job? I want to go do a project, but I want to come back to my job in case this doesn't work. Fear sometimes can get in us and start altering what we think God might have said. His boss looked at Gary and said, I can't do it. Gary, if you leave today, you've been a great employee. But if you leave today, you leave. And I cannot secure your job. Fear came over him. It was paralyzing. Prayers that he had prayed, covenants that he had made, decisions that he'd made, all seemed to get resurfaced and everything seemed to be on the line. And he thought to himself in that moment, it's almost like time stopped, Gary said, that he thought to himself, you know, tell you what, if, if, if I do this, what is my fear? And he realized that failure and humiliation were it. Not even the financial ruin that it can bring his family. It's the humiliation that he launched something great for God and failed. It wasn't even the fact that he might get death threats, which he gets every week. It wasn't the fact of having multi-million dollar sex trafficking monsters who are passionate to kill him. That wasn't even on his radar. It was just humiliation. What would it be like if I launched this ministry and it failed? What will people say about Gary Haugen? In that moment, literally, as time was moving on, he cries out to God. God, if you want me to do this, please give me the strength to say yes. If you want me to take this step, leave this secure job, put my family at risk, my reputation, if you want me to do this, please give me the strength to say yes. Gary walked out of that office and told his boss, it's been great to work for you, but I resign. I've more than a few times wondered, what would have happened if fear would have won 
today. I wonder where the thousands upon thousands of young girls that have been rescued because of international justice mission. I wonder how many of them would be alive or how many of them would still be under the enslavement of some tyrant selling their body to make them millions. I wonder how many of those young boys that are rescued off of the boats out of the Philippines that get thrown over the edge, tangled in nets trying to retrieve all of the fish and oftentimes get tangled in those nets and drown. But they don't care because there's a bunch more boys that they can steal. I wonder how many of those young boys who are now men would not be alive if fear would have won that day. You see, friends, when you're stuck in senseless fear, don't ever believe the lie that it's just you. It's not. There's other people out there that need you. There's other people out there that are going to depend upon you. And there's other people that if you in this moment back away from this courageous challenge and you walk out and you let fear win, imagine if Gary would have told his boss, I don't want to lose my purse. How many young girls would be dead? Well, I want to ask you, if you lose the battle today with fear, Have you ever calculated the impact? Have you ever asked yourself the question? How many people will die because I walked away from a fight? It's not your fight to win. It's God's. But you have to cry out to him. You have to surrender. And it's then that God will drive out senseless fear and give you the courage to say yes. Yes.